prayer. Our Father God, we thank you that you speak to us through your word. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would be pleased to do just that in our time together this evening. And we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and minds would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So Mark chapter 12, and I'll read from verses 28 to 34. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that Jesus answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you're a right teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Well, as we continue in this series in Mark's Gospel, uh, we are continuing to build up a picture of Jesus as the one with total authority. So last week we saw Jesus' authority displayed in a dispute, a discussion about the resurrection. And Dan encouraged us to, encouraged us to always be thinking about the resurrection, always having it forefront in our minds in the Christian life, the fact of full bodily resurrection with Jesus. A resurrection for some to judgment and for some to salvation is something that we should always have in our minds. And if that's the case, then the appropriate question to ask is, if that is a day which is coming, a day of judgment and salvation, as all are raised to stand before God, well then, what does that mean for how I live in the here and now? It is a good question. It's a question which seems to have been on the mind of at least one person who we meet in Mark's gospel, this scribe who comes to Jesus in this story. Uh, we see Jesus facing many questions from Mark chapter 10 through to Mark chapter 14. This is, this is probably the only honest question Jesus is asked in all of these chapters. It's not designed, like many of the others, to try and trip Jesus up or to trap him. What seems to be in this scribe's mind is if what's just been discussed, the resurrection, if that's a certain thing, then by what standard will we, will I be judged on that last day? And so if last week we were challenged to see the power of God and the authority of Scripture both resting in Jesus, well, this week we are challenged to listen to Jesus and to love him and to listen to his commands, to have a deep love for God and a deep love for God's people. 
as well as once again being drawn to see Jesus' supreme authority. So those are the two things, the king's commandment, the king's authority, both on display once again in Mark's gospel. And those are the two headings under which we'll consider this passage this evening. First of all, the king's authority. Uh, We often say when we're preaching, we'll get to maybe our second or third point and say, this is a bit briefer. Uh, This first point's a bit briefer. uh, So when we get to the second point, we're not nearly done. There's a bit longer to go. But we need to start here because there are two things that this passage is doing. It is challenging us to reflect on the commandments themselves. and, And we'll get to that. But it is also reminding us of that big theme that I've already mentioned. That theme that we've seen come up time and again over this last four or five weeks. Jesus is the king with authority to save and authority to judge. And he is therefore the king who is worth following with all of our lives. Now that seems to be something that the scribe in this story is beginning to realize. We have that interaction last week between Jesus and the Sadducees. And it looks like this scribe has been watching that whole discussion unfold, their question about marriage in the resurrection. And as he's heard Jesus answering these trivial questions from the Sadducees designed to try and trip him up, this scribe has found himself thinking, actually, this Jesus seems to have the right answers. He seems to be answering people wisely. That's why we're told in verse 28 at the start of our story tonight that he saw that Jesus answered them well. So if this scribe is recognizing something of Jesus' authority, well, he's definitely an outlier in terms of the rest of the religious order. In fact, next week, Jesus will say, beware of the scribes, plural, This scribe, singular, is an outlier compared to the rest of the religious elite surrounding him. Uh, Back in a previous life, I I lived in a house with five blokes, and uh, we'd occasionally stay up late. Uh, I'm I'm up late a lot these days, uh, although for different reasons. Back then, it was playing a game called Zombies uh, on Call of Duty. It was a game in which you would face off wave after wave of attack uh, from these hideous creatures uh, and try and survive for as long as you could. Uh, and if it's not too um, irreverent an illustration, uh, Jesus, in a similar way over the last few weeks, has been facing off wave after wave of attack. So we've seen the chief priests and the scribes trying to trick him into blasphemy, but Jesus exposing their hypocrisy. We've seen the Pharisees and Herodians trying to trip Jesus up on political grounds, trying to denounce Caesar, but actually they're left marveling at Jesus' wisdom. Last week, the Sadducees tried to make a mockery of Jesus' theology, pouring scorn on the very idea of a resurrection. But Jesus shows them how for all their supposed knowledge, they don't know the scriptures, and they certainly don't know God's power. Wave after wave of attack, but through it all, nobody is able to lay a glove on Jesus. 
Now that lays a bit of helpful groundwork for from next week on when we see Jesus go more directly after denouncing some of these religious leaders. Beware the scribes, he will say. He goes on more of the offensive next week and the groundwork is laid. As he does that, if we're ever tempted to think, oh, is Jesus being a bit harsh? Nobody's perfect. Well, actually, Jesus is. There's no case to answer. No one can stick any charge on Jesus. And so he does have authority to judge the old Israel order with complete integrity. But also, as well as just laying the groundwork for what we'll see then, there is once again for us the humbling reminder that here Jesus, in the last week of his life, marching towards the cross on which he will die for our sins, is doing so completely willingly completely innocently and enthralled to absolutely nobody. He is totally willing. He's not being tricked or trapped. He's not being caught out for being a hypocrite or a criminal. He is going completely willingly, the king with all authority. And that, once again, should make us full of humble thanksgiving that Jesus the innocent, Jesus the wise, the one with total control and authority, as as we keep seeing in these chapters, he is the one who willingly laid down his perfect life for you and for me. Even more importantly, though, as well as just demonstrating that again, Mark is also demonstrating not only does Jesus have this authority, but there are also two ways in which we can respond to that authority. I find it interesting. I don't know about you, but this passage ends with that note that after that, no one dared to ask Jesus any more questions. We might think that's case closed. If Mark's gospel ended there, we might think it was quite a, a happy and fitting ending. No one can lay any charge on Jesus. They just let him get on with his ministry and mind his own business. But that's, we know, not what happens. The old order of Israel seemed to conclude that because there's nothing they can do to trip Jesus up or trap him, because he answers with wisdom and authority, well, then they're just going to have to kill him instead. You see, seeing that Jesus has authority is not quite enough. Any of us can choose to be outraged by that authority as we recognize how much it will totally upend our lives, how it will give lie to the the systems that we've put in place to be the masters of our fate, the captains of our souls. That seems to be the attitude of the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, all the old Israel order. We can't trip this guy up, so let's just get him out of the picture. It's safe to say that they are not being held out as examples for us to follow. Instead, in these chapters, there are two more positive examples of what it means to recognize Jesus' authority to recognize the scriptures and the power of God as we saw last week and to respond rightly. One of them is the widow who we'll meet next week who is willing to give everything in devotion and service to God. And the other is the scribe in this story. 
both of them are being contrasted with the religious order of the day. Because they recognize that Jesus has authority and so therefore is worth listening to and worth following with all of their lives. That's a, a partial realization at this point for the scribe. It's a partial realization for the widow as well. But these characters serve as helpful examples for us, helpful reminders that as we keep seeing in these chapters Jesus' total authority, that we should also keep seeing just how much his is an authority that we should submit to and throw our whole lives behind. Well, again, the next logical question to ask is therefore how? What does it actually look like to submit to Jesus, to listen to his command, to live following his authority? Well, helpfully, Mark explains a little bit of that as well in this account because we see the king's authority. We also see the king's command. Here we come to the actual presenting discussion itself. The scribe comes to him, verse 28, heard them disputing with one another, seeing that Jesus answered them well, asked Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Now remember, unlike everybody else, this scribe is not trying to trip Jesus up. And that's hinted at in the motivation to his question. It's not seeing a potential weakness in Jesus' argument. It's seeing that he answered them well. So his motivation seems to be to hear more from this wise teacher who answers people's questions well. Then also the content of the question itself. This is a question that rabbis and teachers of the day loved to sit around and chew over. Jerusalem coffee shops of the time would be full of people sitting around saying, what's the greatest commandment of all? In the same way that you and I might say, what are some of your favorite Bible verses? Or if you're a bit more geeky, what's your favorite aspect of Reformed theology? It's always a great chat to have. Something you can have a robust but healthy and friendly discussion about. So quite a common question for these kinds of people to ask. But we also need to remember what's likely lying behind the question. This notion of resurrection and of judgment which is coming and the standard therefore by which we will be judged. Which commandments, in other words, are the most important ones, the ones against which God will chiefly measure my performance when it comes to that final judgment? Well, if that's the real question behind the question, then obviously the first half of Jesus' answer is not a surprise. It's certainly not a surprise to us, and it wouldn't have been a surprise to the scribe or to the people listening on. Verse 29, Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Here Jesus is quoting from the Shema. We had it read for us earlier, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. It's called the Shema because of that first word here, which in Hebrew is Shema. These verses were very highly prized by the Jews. 
deeply precious to them in their religious and national identity, these precious words from God. Earlier in that Deuteronomy 6 reading, we actually got some more of the verses following this in which we see God telling them not only to love him with all their hearts and souls and minds and strengths, but to take those words and to teach them diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, bind them as a sign in your hand. They shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. That's how precious and crucial these words from God were. All of the law, but in particular, this command to love him deeply and with their whole selves. It's a bit like we saw back in the series on the Ten Commandments. At the heart of God's law lies the character of God himself and the call to love and worship him with all of life. That's the starting point for any study of the law. Who is God and what is he like? He is a God who is worth loving and following with all of our lives. That's something that they knew to be true. If, if the scribe had asked this question to any of his fellow scribes or Pharisees, in fact, likely if he'd asked this question to basically any Jew of the day, they would have replied almost certainly with Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. What's slightly more surprising, though, is how Jesus adds in verse 31, the second commandment is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. There are certain indecisive people. I'm sure you've met them. You ask them, uh, what's their favorite coffee shop in St. Andrews? And they can't tell you. They name four or five. You ask them, what's their favorite book or film or movie? And they give you a top three. Uh, and it's really frustrating. You want to pin them down and go, give me one answer. What's your actual favorite? What's the actual best? That's not what Jesus is doing here. When he's asked for the greatest commandment and actually squeezes in these two commandments, it's not because he's indecisive. It's because he is reminding this scribe and those listening that love for God and love for neighbor are totally inseparable. He is saying you really can't be doing the former if you're not also doing the latter. That's something that's really clear throughout the New Testament. We might think of Jesus saying, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Or you might think of both Romans or the book of James where we are called to be hearers and doers of the word. It is really clear that just knowing about God and just claiming to love him is not enough. That love needs to show itself practically in loving others, chiefly in loving God's people. The believer who says, I don't really do church, I find it much more nourishing to practice my own relationship to God, 
Well, we can rightly challenge them and say, how then are you loving your neighbor? If it's about loving God and loving your neighbor and they're inseparable, how then can you really claim to love God if you're not loving his people? Jesus is showing here, though, this is not just a New Testament idea that was tacked on. It's not just a church history idea that we've developed over time, the idea of doing it all in community together. No, love for God and love for neighbor have always been the dual and inseparable command at the very heart of God's law. It has always been the case. That's why one writer puts it that the standard by which God will judge is a biblical standard. It has always been part of his law. It's also an understood standard. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious elites listening in, they would have known this. They would have known that God commands to love him deeply and to worship him with all of life. They would also have known that he commands time and again for that love to express itself in deep care for the people around them. They would have known it, but even here we see Jesus exposing the hypocrisy of the leadership, the religious leadership of the day. It's like they've become willfully blind to the fact that at the heart of the law that we have this dual command, love God and love his people. They would have known Deuteronomy 6 inside out. They would have prided themselves in loving God deeply, in observing his law in extreme ways, of adding their own system of obedience just to express how much they were devoted to their God. But they were slow to acknowledge that that very same love ought to have meant getting their hands dirty with loving other people in real and tangible and practical ways. That's something we'll see really clearly next week. When Jesus says, beware of the scribes, he describes them as people who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These are people who trust in dull rituals, who trust in religious performance. They're not people who are cultivating hearts which are so full of genuine love for God that they cannot help but love others. They claim to love God, but actually their complete disdain for those around them, especially the weakest and the most vulnerable around them, betrays that they don't really know or love God at all. That is the hypocrisy of the religious order of Jesus' day. And I take it that lays out a really big challenge for us too. Again, we'll be told to beware of the scribes next week and they're making a big show of religious stuff while having hearts that are far from God. As we read verses like that, we can rightly give thanks that we are fundamentally different from the scribes and the Pharisees. You see, we do want to listen to Jesus. We do love him. They are filled with murderous hatred for him. We are fundamentally different. But 
even still, when we read of their empty, hypocritical religiosity, we may still find some warnings that we need to pay attention to as well. I reckon it can actually be quite easy for us to do lots of things that make us look like we really love God. Well, I'm sure we could all fill in that list and come up with quite a few things. I noted down coming to church, being at the summer seminars, leading a life group, being on various routes. I'm sure we could add loads of things to that list. Any number of activities which may make it look like we love God. But even as we go through that list and tick them all off one by one, to be full of resentment and coldness towards brothers and sisters. We can be really quick to say, I'll pray for you. Really slow to go and visit friends, brothers, sisters in their hour of need. We can smile and nod our way through a conversation over a coffee on a Sunday but all the while looking around the room for someone more impressive or cool to speak to or an excuse to leave. I'm sure there are many other ways in which we can recognize that disparity in ourselves. The genuine love for God and the desire to follow him and the desire to be known as someone who loves God, but the reality of feeling time and again to love God's people. If this passage then causes us to reflect on how much we are really allowing our love of God, how much we're really allowing our listening to God's King to spill over into real, practical, hands-dirty love for God's people, then that's a good thing. It's right that we hear that challenge. If it feels an obvious challenge, though, we're getting close to the point. This is a biblical standard. It's an understood standard. Also, quite obviously, what Jesus describes here is an impossible standard. Nobody, not one of us, is able to love God with all their heart and soul and mind and strength. Not one of us has ever or will ever love anyone and give them as much care and attention as we do ourselves. We see a bit of that recognition in the scribe's response and in Jesus' reply. Verse 32, the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one. There is no other besides him. And to love God with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. That last bit is actually a pretty huge deal for a scribe to say. Acknowledging, recognizing that love for God and love for neighbor is more than the whole religious system that he and his friends have devoted their lives to, all burnt offerings and sacrifices. He's beginning to acknowledge that the temple system was never meant to be the end in itself, but only ever to point forwards to the Lord Jesus in whom true worship of God is offered. He's starting to realize that God cares more about heart worship 
rather than dull keeping of rituals. That's something that is clear once again right through the law, right through the Old Testament. We're coming to the book of Joel in our morning sermons soon. In a couple of weeks' time, we'll read God's command to rend your hearts, not your garments. We often sing Psalm 51 when we confess our sins in this church. We, we sing a version of these words, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The fact that what really matters to God is hearts which are close to him, hearts which acknowledge their need, their deep sinfulness and brokenness. That's always been what God has looked for. It's something which this scribe seems to be realizing now. Maybe not for the first time, but starting to realize it in a meaningful way. So meaningfully, in fact, that Jesus says he is not far from the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God is a big theme through Mark's gospel. That is a really important verdict to hear. Now, not far is obviously still not in. But in recognizing that the heart of true worship is love for God and love for others, and recognizing the inability of man to to worship God through religious practices and to solve the problem of broken hearts, recognizing these things means that this scribe is on the right track towards acknowledging how deeply he needs God's king to save him in a way that he cannot save himself. I wonder then if that's something you've ever acknowledged for yourself. We often get people coming to church who are just checking out Christianity, maybe a bit new to church, but maybe especially if you're coming to give Christianity your first ever serious look, maybe you've picked up bits and pieces at school chapel or at carol services over the years. What we have here is part of the essence of what it means to be a Christian, to be someone who follows Jesus. In other words, what we have here is a really clear statement that it's a a lot more than just be a good person, and certainly that it's a lot more than just don't be a terrible person, and maybe even most surprisingly of all, it is a lot more than just follow this list of religious rules and God will grade you pass or fail at the end of your life. No, surprisingly... At the heart of the gospel message, the Christian message, is an absolutely impossible standard. The call laid before you is one to love God with absolutely every fiber of your being all the time. And while you do that, to love the people around you with the same default automatic preferential care with which you love yourself. To never get short-tempered with a misbehaving child to never join in with the gossip about your boss at work, to never pretend that you don't see that overly chatty next-door neighbor when you're unpacking the shopping, to never say a hurtful word, to tear someone down, or never lie about yourself to get out of a tight spot, or to never even think nasty thoughts about people you don't like. I hope all that makes it a bit clearer. This is a truly impossible standard that none of us meet. 
Happily, though, the message of our church, the message of God's word, is not we're all great people, be like us. It's we have a great king, Jesus. One who is just like this. One who never lets us down. One who never, ever let God down. One who never failed to give God his due. Who never failed to show deep love and compassion to the lost around him. If you haven't acknowledged yet the gap between what God demands of all of us and how we actually live, let me invite you to do just that. Let me invite you to come and put your trust in this King Jesus who even in this passage is on his way to the cross to pay the penalty for all of my failures and all of yours. And for those of us who already know and love Jesus as our King, well, we would do well to let this passage serve as a reminder of just how deep our need is. I think that remembering just how impossible the standard before us is will drive us back towards Jesus, our King, mindful of how needy we are of his mercy and grace. And I think it should also humble us. It should give lie to those moments when we tell ourselves that we're actually not too bad and base our standing before God on how well we follow rules. I think it will also help us want to love other people, even as we grow in love for God. After all, as we see so much throughout Mark's gospel, if, if Christ is the way in which God has shown me such mercy and grace, even though I'm so undeserving, that's how much God loves me. How could I ever withhold that kind of generous love from other people? Our king has issued us a command here. And so let's, with God's help, strive to follow it, to love God and to love people every day out of thankful hearts. Wonderfully, though, even as he issues that command, he does so as the king with authority. The king with authority to cover over all of our many feelings, even in following those commands. So let's be mindful of our king with authority. Keep all of our trust and all of our joy in him. We're going to pray now, and I believe what we're going